pray. Heavenly Father, please be our guide by your Holy Spirit this morning as we study your word. Guide our thoughts and our attitudes to be true to your nature and your holiness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, today we're looking at the last half of Mark chapter 9. And we kind of have a few paragraphs or passages that look like separate bits of teaching. Um, but after I look more closely, I see that they actually, um, they kind of have some continuity. They flow together. Um, Jesus and his disciples were travelling through Galilee on their way to Jerusalem, where the plan is for Jesus to be crucified. Verse 30 um, says that Jesus didn't want others to know where they were because he needed privacy to teach his disciples about his true mission. Everyone, including the disciples, wanted Jesus to be a Messiah that would overthrow the Romans. But Jesus, on the other hand, was saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the Son and they were afraid to ask him. Just remember back a week or two, I mean, especially after the time when Peter confronted Jesus about going to the cross and Jesus' stinging rebuke, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. Um, so there's something going on here that's more than just coincidental. Jesus' journey to the cross is no Ned Kelly story where they had a bad egg that gave them up and the authorities got them and took them away. In verse 31, Jesus is going to be delivered. This is not a plan gone wrong because they had a rat on the inside. This is a plan before the creation of the world, a plan of God himself to hand over the life of his only son to the hands of men who will kill him and then three days after will rise from the dead so that he can pay for the sins you and me. So Jesus is patiently revealing this to his disciples, but they're just not getting it. They're making mistakes at every turn. Have you ever seen the movie called The Bad News Bears? Okay. There's, a, there's probably a hundred different movies that are exactly the same as this movie. You've got this baseball team in America, and they're pathetic. They're just, they're just hopeless. They're more than hopeless. But eventually, they make it to the semi-finals, and then they make it to the final, and then they make it to the grand finals, and then they win the grand final. It's kind of this really lovely story. But in the beginning, it just, it just, what the disciples are up to now just remind me of the bad news bears. They're just making mistakes all over the place. They just don't seem to have the vision at all of where they're going. <clears throat> Jesus is teaching them that their redemption, their life and their salvation will come through the cross. But instead of asking Jesus what he meant, like a bunch of naughty teenagers on a road trip, they're arguing about who's the greatest. I'm better than you. Who's going to be the greatest? When they reach Capernaum, 
and they'd gone into the house in a more private setting, Jesus asked them what they're talking about as they travelled, but they kept silent. They're overcome with shame and embarrassment. Shame and embarrassment because fresh in their mind was the incident of the large crowd and the teachers of the law where some of the disciples couldn't drive out the evil spirit from a man's son. But somehow they could still argue about their greatness, right? (laughs) They're not having a good run, are they? Of course, we're no better today. Everything in this world points towards this status and curiosity about who the greatest is. Who's the greatest footballer? Who's the greatest boxer? Who's the greatest tennis player of all time? Who's the bloke that wants to be the greatest tennis player of all time that thinks he's nearly there? Who's the best preacher, Christian, and so on? We're so motivated by a desire to be great And um, similar to what Derek said last week, I see Facebook memes all the time, be the best version of yourself. See, we think we need significance to give our lives meaning. We want influence and power. We want to be remembered. And as Derek said last week, we even have so-called Christian teachers feeding us into this that will say to tell yourself how blessed you are, tell yourself how prosperous you are. But Jesus tips all of this on his head, on its head, completely upside down. He says, whoever wants to be first has to be last. Don't tell yourself how great you are. Serve others. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which was just a minute symbol of what was to come, how he was to serve us by dying on a cross with the weight of our sin on his shoulders. There is no higher level of service than this. When as a Christian we seek greatness, we have to wonder whether we've understood it all. So Jesus takes his disciples into the house and he sits down. Now sitting down was kind of the official teaching position. That's like, I'm going to teach you guys something. And he summoned the twelve. Fellas, we have something to learn here. He takes a child in his arms, and in that culture, child were rather unimportant. Uh, they were, um, they had no power, no influence, they had no money. Uh, a bit different to t- today's society. Children are revered, children are loved. Sammy can't take her hands off that little baby there whenever she gets near little Nora. Different story in Jesus' day. Jesus teaches that instead of serving our own interests, we should serve others. And the lesson is not about just what we should do, but a heart attitude lesson. Pride in ourselves has to turn into love for others, especially the underprivileged. Anyone who does this, Jesus says, receives him. And in doing so, we receive the Father as well. And you can notice the connection here. The only way 
to the Father is through Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in God at all. You've got a made-up God. So remarkably, in verse 38, right in the middle of Jesus' lesson on pride and humility, John, still full of pride, says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus says, don't stop him, for the one who does a mighty work in my name will... uh, For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, the disciples who could not drive out a demon tried to stop someone who could. This man was a follower of Jesus. He wasn't with the disciples. He wasn't following the disciples. So they tried to stop him. I think some pride and jealousy here, don't you? Sometimes if we can't do something, we don't want anyone else to do it. But Jesus says, don't stop them. If he's not against us, he's for us. It doesn't cease to become Christian work just because you didn't do it. And at this point, um, by the way, I could go into tangents uh, at this point about um, uh, how we should view our Christian brothers around the world and how we should not. Um, But that's actually not the focus of this passage here here today. Um, And at this point, Jesus seems to go off on a tangent. Uh, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And then he changes it from them to if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is kind of ramping up his examples, isn't he? The disciples just aren't getting it. So he goes to this radical metaphor to illustrate the intense seriousness of sin. The lengths that we should go so as to not cause sin in others, especially those of weaker faith. And the lengths that we should go to prevent sin in ourselves. Now, it's obvious that this metaphor isn't literal. Because it's pretty obvious that a man with one eye, one hand and one foot 
can still sing just the same as if he had two. But the warning is just as serious. Jesus uses three examples that are far-reaching. And I think there's a bit of meaning there. There's a hand, what you handle, what you touch, what you take. There's the feet, where you go, the situations you put yourself in. There's the eye, what you covet, what you look at, what you long for. And we know that sin isn't just the action, it's the heart's desire underneath. It's when Jesus said, if you look at a woman, you've committed adultery. And we must hate our sin enough to make changes to do with the things that we look at, where we go, what we have, in order to live for Christ and not against him. There's no sin that God does not forgive, apart from the sin of not believing in him. But sin attacks our faith. For believers, I know that when sin runs unchecked in my life, my faith begins to fade. Thoughts start to creep in like, is God actually real? Opportunities to share the gospel, I completely ignore. And unbelief, do I really believe the gospel? My love for the new believer dwindles and I'm not so enthusiastic about their faith. Jesus is very graphic in this extreme teaching about the seriousness of sin and also the reality of health. Do you think he's trying to shock his disciples? Do you think he's really trying to shake them up? Do you think he's really trying to get their attention? He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm heading towards the cross. But you're not getting it. There's a reason I'm heading towards the cross. You need to understand the seriousness of this situation. Jesus talks about hell more times than anyone else in Scripture. I don't think we would believe it from anybody else. We scarcely believe it from Jesus. He's the only one truly qualified to talk about it. Because he's the only one qualified to save you from it. I I had two questions from this um, about hell. Is Jesus' description literal? Is it a real lake of fire? Is the sulphur real? My answer is I don't know. But there's nothing that anyone's ever experienced on this earth that even comes close to a moment in hell. There's no description that we can give that would come close to it. Because while we're on this earth, everyone, Christians and non-Christians, experience a certain measure of God's grace and protection from his wrath. My second question is, hell, is hell separation from God? Um, yes. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut off 
from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. But in another sense, hell will have the presence of the wrath of God. As Revelation 14.10 says, he will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think hell could be described as the absence of the grace of God but the presence of his wrath for the rest of eternity, forever. Now, whatever you do this morning, don't get the idea that from this passage you can somehow stop sinning and therefore avoid hell. If that was true, Jesus died for nothing. R.C. Sproul once said, and this would also be true of Rob Hemming, if God spoke to me in a loud voice and said, Rob, you're going to hell, I would have absolutely no grounds to complain. My life most definitely falls short of God's glorious nature. Gouging out my eye can never get me to heaven. That would leave me sinful and blind. My only hope is to have faith in the promise of substitutionary atonement, who big words, through the cross. That means his life sacrificed to mine. He lived the life I should have lived. And yet he sacrificed it, paid the punishment for my sin and gave me his righteousness. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be any of you with with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, sin, it's not sin that leads a sensible believer to hell. But an unchecked and unrepentant heart will erode our faith. And we have some really severe warnings about losing our faith. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Christian life is about finishing well. It's about running with endurance in faith. We come to the, um, uh, the verse 49. It says, everyone will be salted with fire. That's a strange, strange saying, isn't it? Um, took me a bit of head, getting my head around it. As Sal says, salt in the old days, before refrigeration and antiseptic was used to cleanse and it was used to preserve. It was also used for taste. Um, and you ever heard of a saying to rub salt into someone's wound? It doesn't mean much these days apart from hurting someone. But back then it actually fixed, the, it actually healed the wound. It hurt like egg. But it, hit, but it fixed the wound. It was, a, um, uh, it, it, was a, it was an antiseptic. It cleansed. I think uh, Jesus is saying that just like how gold has impurities, 
and it's taken out of a uh, uh, um, uh, sorry gold. When you refine gold, right, you, you put it in a furnace, you melt it, the impurities come to the top, and they can take the, the impurities out. That's the refiner's fire. Every Christian is purified or salted by the refiner's fire. This is the sanctification we were talking about last night. Um, this is how God refines our life, how he brings our sin before us and we go, oh yeah, sorry Lord. That's not part of your nature. We don't want to do that. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And it is very interesting that salt's one of the most stable elements um, that there is. And the only way that it can lose its saltiness is with contamination. And back then, if it wasn't processed properly, it would have poor taste and it would become worse than useless. It would actually make the food taste worse, not better. And it had to be thrown out. Uh, Luke 14, verse 35 says it's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. When you apply salt to the wound, it hurts. When God applies his cleansing and conviction of sin in our lives, sometimes that hurts too. But don't resist it because healing is so good. Have salt in yourselves. He's saying to the disciples, he's saying to us, have salt, have cleanliness in yourselves. Get rid of all this muck about arguing with one another. But be at peace with each other. I think as we step back and, and to take the context of this passage and we see that the disciples at that point just didn't get it. When we, see, when we get into chapter 10, we said they still didn't get it because they were trying to stop little people from little children coming from Jesus again. They still didn't get it. And the core of their problem wasn't so much that they didn't care for children. The core of their problem wasn't so much that they hadn't really got this sin of pride under control. The core of the problem, I believe, was their resistance to the cross. They didn't understand that their salvation would come through Jesus' death. I think that's a great lesson for us to learn today. The core of our, of our problem when we're caught in sin is not that we've just got to overcome this sin. We've got to embrace the cleansing that comes through the cross. We've got to run to Jesus and know that he's already forgiven us and accept that forgiveness. So this morning, we're going to move into a time of communion. Um, I'm going to read three little um, a verse from Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. In Mark 14, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. In Luke 22, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What Jesus was trying to point to, what he was trying to point the disciples to and teach them about pointing towards the cross 
was the blood covenant that he was about to achieve between God and mankind. This, in this covenant is an unbreakable deal that God will always honour, even if we don't. If we sin tomorrow, he keeps his side of the bargain. His forgiveness is always there. So God is faithful and his forgiveness is sealed in the blood of his son, Jesus who died once for all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this forgiveness and your amazing gift of grace. Father, minister to our hearts Father, give us your peace. Despite our sinfulness. Lord, as we take these elements of bread and wine today, let us remember your body broken and your blood shed for us and the amazing gift of grace that you give us through that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.